All right, welcome back, everybody. Thirsty Thursday, number number five. Five uh, tonight we have on tap Assistant Chief Rob Frampton from the Salisbury Fire Department in Maryland, uh, talking kitchen fires. Um, we're going to do uh, something a little different tonight. It's going to be more of um, where we're seeing kitchen fires, um, community outreach, and stuff like that. that the departments are doing, uh, reaching out afterwards and trying to prevent them uh, in future fires. Um, and then we're going to wrap it up with a little bit of tactics. So um, hang in there. Uh, there's going to be good stuff all the way through. We can promise you that. Uh, now I'll kick it over to Chief Tri Chief. Ugh, excuse me. Too much Corona already. Uh, kick it over to Chief Steven uh, for him to take over from there. Great. Thank you, Ben. Um, definitely want to welcome everybody tonight, especially uh, Chief Frampton from Salisbury Fire Department. I've had the pleasure of knowing Rob for a long time and being able to work with him for a while. And um, as part of what he's gonna talk about later on tonight is some of the importance, not only about the strategy and tactics behind kitchen fires, but also a lot of the, of the other parts that we usually don't talk about. Some of the pre-planning, some of the community risk reduction uh, portions of this that we usually don't get too much into in the fire service, but uh, hopefully by the end of this, everyone will see really the um, the research that he's done, why it's so important, and have maybe a look at this through a little bit different lens. Um, so with that, uh, again, welcome everybody. I'm Trevor Steedman. I used to work with uh, actually all three of these other miscreants on the screen here with you uh, back up in Maryland, and I'm now down here in South Florida and um, just in, enjoying life right now. So uh, appreciate you all being with us, and I'll pitch it over to Bobby McGee. Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome. Welcome, Chief Frampton. I appreciate it. I guess Ben, on our side of the table here, we got to ask if we got on Chief all night or if we can just talk to those guys as Rob and Trevor. We'll <laughs> check with them here in a little bit about that. that that's a good question. First, first and foremost, uh, we're thinking about everybody. Uh, things are starting to open up and things are starting to happen around around the country. So a um, little cheers to my old employer. Um, about 20 years ago, I left Sussex County EMS and they're having a, a, a heck of a bad time with some of the coronavirus stuff and a big spike here in the county. So uh, I wish them all the best to stay safe and uh, take care of everybody. And uh, I'm really excited to uh, hear the conversation. I, everyone knows I'm kind of a research kind of guy. So uh, some of the stuff that Rob put out was uh, really, really interesting stuff that uh, kind of opened my eyes a little bit to kitchen fires. So uh, let me give it over to Rob and let's uh, hear what you hear your intro, brother. All right. Uh, thank you guys for inviting me tonight. Uh, like they said, uh, my name is Rob Frampton. I'm assistant fire chief with the Salisbury Fire Department. Uh Used to work with Trevor and, and Bobby down at the beach uh, when I was first getting started back in uh, 99 and 2000 and uh, kind of have made my home with Salisbury, started out as a volunteer and progressed up through the ranks and uh, currently am assigned as the assistant chief on a shift. Uh, and I got a good group of uh, guys and gals underneath of me and uh, they've allowed me and supported me in doing some of this uh, research. So looking forward to see where tonight's conversation leads us and uh, like Trevor said kind of hit on the importance of uh, the studies and the research and the science behind some of this uh, with regards to uh, taking that into some of the operations and tactics so uh, ready to get going so thank you guys awesome as we kick this off um, as always as you guys are watching uh, feel free to reach out send us questions uh, either through Facebook live or YouTube uh, there's a little bit of a delay so as soon as we see them pop up here um, and then there's a little bit of a pause in the conversation. We'll try and throw that question out 
Um, and, and like we've done before, there's really nothing off topic or nothing um, that we're not going to throw out there to discuss. So please, like I said, if you guys have something, shoot it to us and let us know, and we'd be more than happy to, to talk about it. So here we go. I think we're going to start off with Bobby tonight, um, talking a little bit about, um, uh, well, I'm going to let Bobby take over and do his thing. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, man. Um, you know, uh, I, I like to follow research a lot. Um, you know, everything from the late 80s when Fairfax County did a big research um, study on smoothbore nozzles um, to the high-rise studies that happened um, with the IFF and the uh, NFPA and uh, that group, um, all the way up until the, the ventilation impact studies and things like that. So uh, I've always followed them with a, a keen sense um, when it comes to firefighting. And uh, it's funny when, when we talked about doing this program and seeing some of the information from Rob, I kind of could see how um, this really kind of can dovetail into our tactics um, when, attack, when attacking uh, kitchen fires. Um, I know just yesterday, uh, Wichita had a grab um, with, a, with a working kitchen fire. Um, and Rob's going to talk, I'm sure, a whole lot more about the numbers and the amount of loss and stuff like that. But uh, I found it all, um, you know, very, very interesting. And, um, you know, I think, you know, if we look at it, um, you know, my perspective is uh, we talked a lot about ventilation. The ventilation impact studies talked about two openings is really, really bad an inlet and an outlet. Um, and so what we started doing in the fire service was kind of starting to try to control doors, which is what we were telling civilians to do all along. And so really all that stuff kind of tied together. And, um, you know, now we're doing the same thing. We're controlling the fires by, by closing the doors and victims are surviving because they're closing the doors. So a lot of times this, the studies actually affect us in the firefighting side of things, too. So I'm really excited to have Rob here and I uh, uh, hope to hear a lot more about uh, what he found out. Yeah, so um, I'll, I'll throw out a little bit of it, uh, just so we've got some some kind of some talking points here. Um, I think uh, the thing to remember about kitchen fires, a lot of time I think we overlook them uh, just because they tend to be relatively small in nature. A lot of times it's confined to the, 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 the uh, container or the stove or the room of origin. And uh, I think some of this, the data shows that uh, I believe it was uh, 84% of all uh cooking fires are held to the room of origin or less. Um, the thing that I think is staggering, though, is that overwhelmingly in the nation, the, the average is, is 50% of uh, most fire departments total property losses because of cooking fires. So um, in addition to that, they tend to only be about 2% of our calls. So a lot of stuff there. Um, there's a ton of information out there on it um, through, you know, USFA and um, IFC, IAFF, uh, those kind of things um, that are out there. But just to kind of get us going, uh, specifically with regards to Salisbury, um, in Salisbury, it was 57.6% of our total property loss uh, in 2018. Um, so total property loss for the department that year from fires was 2.2 million. And uh, roughly 1.28 was from cooking fires or attributed to cooking fires. Um, so that's that's pretty significant, uh, especially when you're looking at it at being only about two percent of our total call volume. Wow. 
Rob, I think one of the things that we talked about was um, as we were getting ready for this, the, the locations and the places that we're seeing these kitchen fires occur. Um, and I know we had a conversation. We all worked in the resort town of Ocean City. Uh, worked as, um, areas that aren't so so much in that where you have more permanent residents uh, with a different socioeconomic status. Uh, I think one of the things that we talked about or we mentioned were the rental units um, and seeing, seeing the increase in fires there. And um, like, I, like I was alluding to initially, the permanent residents versus the transient and the, the vacation stuff. Um, and the different types of fires that we're seeing as far as kitchens go there. So if you could, you want to touch on that briefly? Sure. Um, so I don't know how many of the people listening are familiar with Salisbury's makeup, but uh, it's a lot of rental property. Uh, there's over 8,000 registered rental units in Salisbury's, uh, in the city of Salisbury, actually. They're not have to be, they don't have to be registered if they're in the county, but um, our population density is about 6,050 per square mile. And uh, our household median income is $28,500, which is below the state average by about 30%. Um, with all those rentals, the low socioeconomic uh, numbers of people that are living there, um, they're, they're lesser educated. Um, and it's a proven fact in, uh, that's out there that these people, renters, tend to not, not care as much about uh, the house, uh, the equipment, the stove, they may be afraid to report something that's broken or malfunction because they're afraid of getting evicted um, <clears throat> or causing anybody to have to come into their house. So um, it's definitely, there's all kinds of research out there um, talking about the difference between owner-occupied structures and rental structures uh, and socioeconomic class. So it kind of goes without saying uh, Salisbury has a lower socioeconomic class than say Ocean City, which we're familiar with. Um, so we're going to run more uh, residential kitchen fires. Now, with that being said, uh, we were talking the other night, uh, Ocean City is probably going to run more commercial kitchen fires um, in the course of a, of a year, just because they have more commercial kitchen kitchens than Salisbury does. Those tend to be controlled with hood systems and things like that. But the, uh, the people in Salisbury, they, we don't have any of those, you know, type of offerings here. So, um, the, the the definitely the big key indicator for that is socioeconomic levels as to why I think Salisbury experiences the amount of kitchen fires that we do. Trevor, how about you guys down in, in Palm Beach Shores? Is it similar to Ocean uh, City? Um, or how, like, how? What's the if you had just off the top of your head, what, what would you say that you guys see more of? It's a little hybrid of both, actually. And it was interesting uh, in speaking last night offline with Rob is I assumed that Salisbury, in addition to what he's talking about with prevalence of kitchen fires, because they're such a large university town or have a large university in their first due, that either on campus and off campus housing would account for a lot of those. And it was really surprising when he told me those statistics just weren't there, um, you know, as compared to some of the other places. Um, some of the differences are uh, we don't have uh, quite the same socioeconomic makeup that Rob does in Salisbury uh, or that we have in Ocean City. We have a much older community uh, per capita. And by and large, we have a very at-risk community, especially now with the COVID going on. So 
our our biggest push is really with what we can do in the inspected properties because the majority of our first due is residential. Um, we do have commercial properties and you know, they they're very well inspected, very well maintained, and we're fortunate in that respect. But the private dwellings typically are not inspected properties for rentals. Uh, even if they have a rental license, that gets our foot in the door to do inspections. But typically, anything that's six or more units would be considered an inspected property, um, and and therefore you know it has a, a regular regular inspections, fire extinguishers required, and we'll see later on um, with some of the things we discussed, uh, some of the fire suppression devices that are available out there for uh, these multiple residential units. So. To that end, um, what we've done for community risk reduction, since most of our kitchen fires are really going to be uh, in private dwellings that we don't have the opportunity to go in and inspect, uh, we take care of it twofold. We do a, uh, a fire extinguisher uh, inspection, maintenance, and selection process for, res for private residences where we work with people in the community and our firefighters work side by side to do fire extinguisher training with these people because you know how it is somebody buys a fire extinguisher and it sits in their broom closet for 15 years and then when they need it it's useless so we go through that process uh we actually go through a hands-on extinguisher uh training with them and then the second thing is we do uh some residential or community risk reduction with uh, residential risk reduction where we'll go out and do a courtesy home fire inspection so we'll look for uh, you know, anything that might not make that home fire safe uh, during the fire prevention, any housekeeping issues and make recommendations. Then it also goes into some other areas like slips, trips and falls, again, just because we have an at-risk community. So uh, the majority of, of ours, what we see, and that's where I think some of the similarities come in, is a lot of it's housekeeping issues. We have uh, a good mix of you know, owner, uh, your own properties and rented properties. But we see a lot of people who uh, have unattended cooking. They'll put pizza boxes in the ovens. Uh, and somebody else who might not be a permanent resident in that house, a, a grandparent might come in to uh, cook something, bake something, and then winds up c catching the pizza boxes on fire. And I just remember back to the Ocean City days, the first uh, trap person that I went to in a, in a structure was actually a kitchen fire in a high rise. And uh, you know, the person was sound asleep in bed and their, their kitchen's off. So. I think we see more of that. Uh, an interesting side note to some of the things is we, because of the climate here, um, we have a lot of outdoor kitchens. So what's kind of weird for us is we'll we'll get a call sometimes for a kitchen fire and we're not sure whether it's inside or outside the structure where normally we'd look at a, maybe a barbecue grill or something outside. There's a lot of large outdoor kitchens. So when a caller calls in and says, my kitchen's on fire, uh, we might not know whether that's inside or outside, but either way, we know it's towards the rear of the structure. So from a tactical standpoint, at least that's a consistency that we do have. Sorry, I forgot where my button was to unmute my mic. <laughs> We've only been doing this for five, five times now. I'll figure it out eventually. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a great thing. And I think that's something that we're gonna get into later that you mentioned there at the end was the the location of the kitchen. Um, when we get into the tactics and talking about that, knowing your buildings, knowing your layouts, all that kind of stuff is, is knowing that the kitchen fire is typically in the back and, um, you know, making, making your line selection, making your approach, making all that kind of stuff or your, your stretch, all that kind of stuff based off of knowing all of that stuff. Um, 
I know in talking with Rob earlier in the week, um, we discussed, um, whew, it's a night, automatic, uh, automatic ex- extinguishment systems um, that some places might have. Um, obviously, in the commercial kitchens, we're going to see a lot of those because uh, they're going to be required. But there are some places, and I know um, in Salisbury, we Rob mentioned earlier that we have um, a set of apartments that have uh, systems in them. And our fire marshal's office um, strongly recommends that as they're in the process of uh, construction and all that, of adding them in. Um, and I know, I think, Rob, you guys actually had a fire in one in the last two months or so. Um, so you want to talk about that? Yeah. So uh, what Ben's referring to is a, is a large, it's, it's a two, two buildings. They are joined through a common hallway on the first floor. Um, it's sprinklered and all that kind of stuff. It's mainly uh, a lower income, older uh, clientele. I'm not sure if there's an actual age uh, requirement to live there or not. Um, but uh, they, they went ahead and they had the, um, I don't know the exact name if they're using the fire stop canisters or not, uh, but they went ahead and installed them above each uh, stove in the occupants rooms. Then they can obviously cook. It's a full apartment uh, in each one. It's a three or four story building. I can't remember three, I think. And um, we actually had a, got a call for an odor investigation and went there and uh, just, like many of us are on all the time, the occupant left food on the stove, left the apartment and uh, she actually left with her son and uh, it ignited. It ignited the, the fire stop canister and the canister um, came down and it did its job. Uh, however, the fire got, I think, a little bit ahead of it. And um, it actually did kick one of the sprinklers as well. But the fire stop did what it was supposed to do. Uh, I just think whatever she had left on there kind of kind of advanced a little much. So we did have a little bit of water damage. Thank, thankfully, we got there and, and were able to get that shut off. But uh, the, the fire stops are definitely something in multifamily uh, dwellings, regardless of uh, any sort of age requirement that uh, strongly need to be uh, recommended. I think some of the, the, the stats that I found were um, I think there's only like eight uh, percent uh, in the U.S. of uh, multifamily residential uh, dwellings that require uh, those fire stop style canisters or some sort of uh, AES system. So um, kind of getting back uh, to, I think uh, Trevor was talking about it, just one little point to throw some more numbers at you. Um, and we talked about this the other night was unattended equipment is the overwhelmingly the uh, leading uh, factor for kitchen fires. Um, I was able to dig up some numbers and uh, 40% of the kitchen fires are because of uh, unattended equipment. So almost half are that. The others would be uh, mechanical deficiency, um, misuse of a material products, so or too much grease in the pan, uh, those kind of things. Um, and then just to piggyback on the uh, low socioeconomic uh, portion of it, um, those people tend to eat less healthy. So they tend to use more grease and fats and studies show that that's not just, you know, uh, an assumption or, or stereotyping that's that studies done um, that have shown that, that those people are, are cooking with more flammable uh, liquids than, than say uh, a, a higher socioeconomic class would. So uh, yeah, that was about uh, the fire that we had up there. Um, Bobby mentioned the, uh, the fire that uh, I think it was Wichita had, um, and just, uh, we'll get into the, to the strategy and tactics a, a little bit later. And I think that's when it's probably appropriate to talk about the, the fire that we were talking about the other night where the guys had to grab, 
Um, I think it's probably a better time to talk about it. So. And uh, real quick, Rob, before we get into that, I just want to talk about some of the unusual kitchen fires that we have also. Uh, I know in Salisbury, you all have a lot, especially up long, um, on Maryland Camden Avenue and some of those areas. You have a lot of the large uh, two and a half story, three story wood frame balloon construction Victorians that have been converted into apartments and boarding houses. So a lot of times where you normally think the kitchen would be in the structure, uh, there might be makeshift kitchens or there might be a common kitchen serving several living units. And I know we had this uh, several years ago in Ocean City. And um, Bobby, you might have to remind me where it was. It's like it was up on 120, 121st Street on the uh, Ocean Block. But uh, because we have so many uh, J-1 visa students to come over and work in the, in the summer season up there, they had taken a section of storage in a parking garage and actually built um, cubicles in there for living, had run um, a, an extension cord as fixed wiring over just with drop down lights. And each one of those units had a mattress and a hot plate in it. Um, so you know, we would go there for odor of smoke or you know a smoke detector activation at you know zero dark 30 in the morning in a parking garage thinking okay this is going to be your typical smells and bells malfunction weather related whatever the case is and you automatically step off the rig and you smell food on the stove and it's a head scratcher because you shouldn't have food on the stove in a parking garage but their pot of ramen noodles had boiled dry um in, in the little cubicles. So that's something we can talk about here a little bit too, is you know the, the typical versus the atypical calls that we might run. And especially uh, we might start having this again uh, in 2008 when we started to have the economic downturn, um, just like we're having some issues now. We had some people who were actually living in their businesses. Uh, we went to a hair salon, again, zero dark 30 call for a what turned out to be a cooking fire in the back of a hair salon, uh, which you wouldn't expect that to be occupied at that time of day. So it's kind of expecting the unexpected, um, even with these kitchen fires. And, and we don't keep stats on those atypical ones you know, normally because they are so far outside the box. But uh, Rob, could you talk about some of the, uh, maybe those larger structures that you go to, especially those Victorians, the boarding houses? Um, we have in the, in the form more so of the Airbnbs and the VRBOs. But uh, in, in your case up there in Salisbury, how, how does that change your tactics when you get to the scene? Sure. So uh, Trevor, Trevor's absolutely right. Uh, we have a, a several large homes along the Camden uh, Avenue area going to uh, down towards the college, uh, along with uh, the Church Street area. Uh, it's funny you bring this up because I was talking to the guys. Uh, I can't remember the nature of the call. They went last shift just on Monday and uh they went to uh, one of the larger three-story homes on Church Street, and uh, it had been divided up into exactly what you're talking about. Common kitchen area on the first floor, common kitchen area on the second floor, and it was nine single-room apartments, uh, nine separate apartments sharing a first-floor kitchen area and a second-floor kitchen area. So, again, that's where one of those – they come in, and, and they, they go to cook their dinner, and they might run back to their room or, or get sidetracked on a phone or, or whatever – and uh, the next thing you know, instead of that fire necessarily being in the room of origin, it's extended out into a common hallway area. And, uh, you know, you've got four or five different uh, units on one floor. Um, so you definitely have to be aware of it. I mean, the things that we look for are some of the things that, that a lot of us look at for other reasons. But uh, counting counting uh, number of gas meters, counting a number of electric meters, 
those kind of things, especially from a, from a command officer standpoint. And that first company or uh, officer arriving standpoint is doing your scene size up and checking and seeing what you've got. Um, when you go on the medical assists uh, and, and the, the EMS calls, taking time to look around and, and, and looking at those buildings and, and, and have the ones that stick out. We're fortunate. Yes, we have them in our district, but there's not so many of them that we can't uh, commit them to memory to at least know, hey, we're going to, you know, the, the 825 East Church Street. Uh, that was that big house we went to two shifts ago where it was, you know, there's two common areas. We're going there for, you know, an odor investigation or something like that. Um, so that's kind of a little bit is, is just paying attention to those things at all times, um, you know, and, and figuring out, I tell my guys all the time and Ben and I've talked about it, uh, you know, estimating hose line stretch stretches, uh, whether you go there for a medical assist, Hey, is this on the second floor, you know, is the 150 bumper line going to make it or do you pull the 350 off the rear to get to the second floor, um, to, to make my fire attack in this, this large house. So, um, you know, those Trevor hit the nail on the head. We've got them. Um, they're all over. They share common bathrooms. They share common kitchens. Uh, and these guys are and landlords are cutting these things up. Um, it causes a forcible entry nightmare on a fire because they're all dead bolted two, three, four, sometimes five times. Um, you know, and these people, again, they're they're a lower socioeconomic class and they they go in there and they they do their thing and they smoke a little marijuana or do something a little heavier and pass out fall asleep and you know forget something on the stove or their neighbor inadvertently forgets something on the stove and then here here we are uh you know at oh dark 30 and you know you know trying to figure out what we're going to do and how we're going to get into these places so it's imperative that throughout uh, any call we're going on uh, to just keep those kind of things in mind and, and estimate, you know, where you're going to put the engine, where you're going to put the truck, what hose lines I'm going to pull and just how many people are living in those kind of buildings. So absolutely. Well, thanks Rob for bringing that up. And uh, Ben, if you don't mind, uh, before we kick over to Bobby, would, would you mind showing the uh, fire suppression system that Rob was talking about? The, uh, the cans, if you have that yeah. video. Handy? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so we, we've got a couple of videos of the um, automatic extinguishing um, equipment, so we'll throw those up right now. Uh, so here. So there was one. Uh, this next one's a little bit longer. Uh, gives, a, I think, a little bit better idea of what, uh, how it works, uh, how you place it, and then, um, again, like I said, how it works. So here's the second one.
So those, those are a couple of examples, or that's one manufacturer of those um, automatic extinguishing systems. I'm sure there's more out there that was just uh, two good videos that we were able to find, or actually uh, Trevor found them and sent them to us so we could show those off. Um, obviously not an endorsement for any particular brand uh, or manufacturer, but if you guys have those, uh, make sure you're checking with the manufacturer, make sure that you're putting them in correctly, um, and that if there's any service or anything that goes with them, that you're, you're checking on that too. Um, do we want to get into talking some tactics, or did we want to talk uh, the community risk reduction before we go there? Well, I, I'll tell you what, man. Let's let's do a little bit of a community risk reduction first, okay. and I think we can ease into the tactics as the, uh, the finale for this. One thing I did want to say about those canisters, uh, the nice thing about them is, as you saw in, in the promo videos from those different manufacturers, they are magnetic and they stick to the metal hood. The beauty behind them is they had they require zero skill set whatsoever to operate, um, other than a cursory visual inspection. Really, um, as far as the, their in-service date, uh, it doesn't require pulling a pin or any any sweeping, or you don't have to worry about plunging into a uh, a pot full of hot grease or anything else. So you know, these really kind of transcend a lot of things, and especially with people who junk up their um, their pantries and everything else. No one typically has a fire extinguisher, no matter how hard we try to educate, placed perfectly in their kitchen and readily accessible. It's usually in the back of a closet somewhere. Um, it has you know spiders and webs and everything else that's in the nozzle. So uh, you know, most of these aren't even serviceable, and you know, we have people all the time. Uh, they think they're going to do the Bruce Willis thing and like crack it over a railing and pitch it like a grenade. It's going to work if it if the squeezing doesn't happen. So um, not a really a good realistic thing. But from a um, community risk reduction standpoint, a lot of places do require these in multiple units, especially rental units, and uh, where you know, people at the end of the rental might take things with them and inadvertently or intentionally take the extinguishers, or again, they're just not serviceable. So it's really something to look into uh, with various manufacturers, like you said, Ben. And uh, because it requires zero skill set to even operate, and you know, especially you don't even have to be home, and it'll work. Whereas an extinguisher, there has to be a human interaction to you know, recognize the fire and also be able to deploy a fire extinguisher at that point. So, um, you know, from a community risk reduction standpoint, it's um, something that is good and. Just to talk about that, I want to segue in and get your all's uh, individual opinions on this. Typically, when we talk about fire prevention, your your average firefighter, um, yeah, they understand the value of fire prevention, and you know, a lot of them do it as a task that's assigned to them once a year. And in October, we're going to the schools, we're talking to the kids, we're doing stop, drop, and roll. But for your firefighters who are the go-getters, they're they're right out of the academy. Uh, they're, they're trained. They might have a couple calls underneath their belt. They, they want to go, and they just don't see the prevention or more so the community risk reduction. It, it's just not sexy. Let's be, let's be blunt about it. It's imperative. It's extremely important, but it's not like uh, you know, you, when you read something in the, in the magazine about, oh, uh, yeah, Ben Waples, he rescued the nine blind children and their quadriplegic mother from searing heat and blinding smoke and without the protective cover of a hose line, blah, 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 versus, oh, uh, yeah, Ben went and installed uh, 26 smoke detectors in an at-risk neighborhood yesterday. Which, which one sounds sexier to you? But which one probably, you know, is, is if not equal, you know, which one probably had even a higher impact than that one family, you actually impacted 26 families with your program. So, 
it's trying to get firefighters to look at things through a different lens. And it also builds that, that capital and that trust within the community. I know uh, you guys in Salisbury do this frequently or, or uh, you have the programs where you do sweeps through different neighborhoods or if there's a structure fire in a neighborhood, you canvass a certain radius around that to do education. Um, and Bobby, I think you guys have some stuff not only uh, in, in your career department, but also up in Delaware. I think you have some initiatives up there um, to make sure this happens. So it's really looking at, to Rob's point, having a, a rental community, which you know, we have a lot of great renters too, but by and large, you typically don't see the same amount of uh, emphasis put in a rental property that you, from a renter that you do from a homeowner. So to that effect, if you have a, a person who can no longer be in their home, like in my case, uh, because of maybe advanced age, somebody's a caretaker, um, and or one spouse is a caretaker, one person breaks their hip, they might have to choose between staying in that home they've worked a lifetime to enjoy, and now all of a sudden they have to say, well, I might have to go into assisted living because I can't live here anymore because it's just not functional for me. And now that home that's been owned for 20, 30, 40 years now becomes a rental property, and you might not have the same upkeep, the same care typically. Um, and that's, again, to Rob's point. So when we when we do some of those uh, maybe what we call non-traditional fire service tasks, they really have a widespread impact. When we did our fire extinguisher training with our, um, with our citizens, we did it with a property owners association group. And we, you know, we put the pail full of, uh, you know, partial diesel, part water out there, lit it off. And we let them side by side with one of our firefighters go in and, and our firefighter talk them through the process. So now we have, 50, 60 more people in the community who not only know how to select a fire extinguisher and maintain one, but they've actually used one and now they have the confidence to do it. Um, you know, was, but was that something that our firefighters got to enjoy? Absolutely. Um, was it as exciting as going in and uh, you know, stretching a line through the front door and knocking, knocking down the beast in the back bedroom? Maybe not, but the capital they built with, with our community and the trust that they built and they know that you know, and even our people in the community, we're not the fire department, we are their fire department. And they say that, and that means a lot to us because you know, when it comes time where, where again, budgets come underneath scrutiny, the things that your backstep firefighters typically aren't gonna concern themselves with because they shouldn't, that's not, that's not their wheelhouse. But when it comes time, the, the people that we built that capital and trust with come to our aid and our defense just as much as we've come to theirs and say, why, are you, you know, why would you want to mess with our firefighters? These, you know, these are our firefighters, our paramedics. So that's kind of the lens I want uh, you know, some, some of our younger folks who are coming up or people that might be aspiring to become officers to start looking through that lens also, you know, all, albeit not as exciting uh, maybe for the most part, it's vitally important. So um, with that, Bobby, what, what, are, what are your thoughts from not only the career end, but also the, the volunteering? So I know you serve a community that's both uh, suburban and rural. So how how is that how does that work for you guys? Yeah, um, I mean I think you know our our thrust has been more uh, smoke detector. So I was actually kind of interested in the the kitchen fire thing because um, you know tactically kitchen fires are, are a little bit uh, different. Um, I was actually really impressed with that that kitchen that they use that demo in. I mean that's not like a kitchen that a lieutenant Ocean City fire department have more like a Paul B. Shores fire chief's kitchen, but. It was very yeah, nice yeah. for them to sacrifice really nice like that, you know. Um, but uh, and then the second thing I worry about those things is I think they're great and I probably should get them. But sometimes my wife uses the smoke detectors as when the dinner's done. 
and I was afraid it might screw my dinner up. So I, I need to really look at the, what temperatures they go off at. But she can hear you, Bobby. <laughs> I hope no. She's inside. I think. I hope. Uh, but no. Um, you know, so uh, smoke detectors definitely save lives. Um, we talked about this the other night. Um, we we're talking about this discussion. Uh, you know, one of the problems with a kitchen fire is most of the time we know what happens. They forget they left the pot on and they, they go to bed or they get drunk and pass out or whatever happens. But they 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 it's unintended cooking. And that's that's a majority of what we go to. Um, so if they don't have working smoke detectors, um, they're not going to know. And, and it, the spread, the advancement of a kitchen fire is so fast, um, you know, those. Most of us remember Dave Dotson stuff about reading smoke and talking about the box. Well, you know, not only reading smoke, but, you know, a kitchen is almost always in a larger area of your house. Uh, so it has more air supply. Um, it shows less smoke outside because a box is large and absorbs more of it. So the fire department can show up and not think it's a really big deal. Pop that door open, give it a little extra air and kind of have things going on. So, um, you know, it really made me think a lot more about, you know, kitchen fires in, in, in general, um, you know, residential sprinklers are really kind of a home run because, you know, kitchens, one of the tendencies of kitchens is because they're hot and they have, you know, we're cooking in there all the time is we tend to not have smoke detectors in there. So we also actually give, you know, kitchens a head start in fire detection because we're not putting heat detectors in residential structures for the most part. Uh, they're required in commercial um you know, things like that. So, uh, you know, one of the things, Trevor, you were talking about earlier was talking about the um, unusual kitchens. And, you know, we have like, like almost like dorm facilities. Uh, and Ocean City is a very, um, uh, a very resort town. Uh, you know, we go all the way up to, you know, anywhere from 20,000, 15,000 people in the wintertime on a weekend to, you know, 400,000 people in the summertime. So that's kind of our, our dynamics. And, they bring in a lot of uh, foreign students and things like that. And so what we have is a lot of the community kitchens that Rob was talking about earlier, you know, where you have a, a kitchen in the middle and then you have units all the way around it and, and common hallways and things like that. And I think Trevor, you touched on a little bit. Uh, we also have a problem with um, them subdividing attics and, and wherever they can find in, 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 in uh, houses and structures in ocean city. So, you know, a kitchen fire that could risk a family of four for us very well could, you know, put at risk 16 or 20 foreign students. Um, so, you know, that's something kind of a little bit, you know, different for us in the whole perspective. But um, it, it's nice to see those, uh, you know, some different things and different technologies coming out to make it not so uh, cost prohibitive as like, say, maybe a sprinkler system in an existing house, but to have something like that. So, um I mean, that's kind of um, that's kind of my spin on it is I think when we start going into the tactics about, you know, uh, structural firefighting in the kitchens, um, you know, I really want people to understand that you can really in those areas of the house, the larger areas, especially the way we try to open these houses up, the newer constructions, very wide open areas, you can have a significantly advanced fire and have nothing showing. And, and, and typically those are going to be starting from those kitchen areas. So this all kind of goes together with our size up our first in engine our first in officer um to kind of see those things so um i'm not sure if that's what you're looking for trevor but i mean that's you know that's kind of my spin on this thing is um i think it's really important for us to pay more attention to the difference with fire starting in kitchens um we do have a lot of commercial stuff in uh, ocean city but that's like a topic for another day i think 
Yeah, and Bobby, that's uh, exactly what I was getting at. And also kind of dovetailing into that is that all kitchens aren't kitchens. Um, and what I mean by that, look, look how much of a utility area that can be in the house where, especially now, where kitchens are also classrooms and offices. So you can kind of expect a little bit of the unexpected in there. Uh, I know some years ago we had a house fire out in West Ocean City and the, um, the people were, uh, what's the way I can put this? They were uh, nocturnal pharmaceutical salesmen um, in their spare time. And so the, the kitchen wasn't just for making chicken and dumplings on the weekends. It was, uh, you know, they, they were cooking their product in there. And when the hose crew uh, or the attack crew went in and started doing the attack, uh, we had, they had a ton of used hypodermic needles on the table that had gotten knocked off the kitchen table from the hose stream onto the floor. Now we're crawling on top of it. So, you know, you kind of get to know your, your areas, your neighborhoods, but this was a typical um, private dwelling. There's nothing from the exterior that you would have stereotyped this in any way, shape or form. You just never know. Um, to that end, also looking from a tactical standpoint, um, and I'll have you guys talk about the, the kitchen locations. One of the things I look at, um, and this is looking at it from a couple different angles, is when you're typically going into a kitchen, uh, it's a utility area of the house. So unless you're a, you know, an Ocean City fire lieutenant who can afford you know, this high-grade carpet in their kitchen, most of us don't have carpeted kitchens. So they're either tile or linoleum. So, and plus with the, uh, you know, the, the grease, the cooking oils or anything else, sometimes it gets really, really slick in there. So trying to advance a hose line, you're having to use alternate techniques like using door frames or using uh, corners of the house, sometimes to even advance the line because, uh, you know, if there's any water on the floor, it gets, it gets pretty slick. Think about that also when you have to rescue a victim or a downed firefighter. And we've trained to that effect where we've actually taken um, dishwashing liquid and put it all over the floor of the burn building to simulate that. Um, it, you've, you're like Bambi on the ice at that point, especially if you start spraying a hose line. So, you know, from a tactical standpoint, um, you're not, again, not talking about the, uh, the position of the kitchen within the structure. We'll get that in a second. But look at some of the, uh, the conditions that you're going to have on the way in and some of the uh, potential things that are going to slow you down, as well as just maybe hinder not only your advance, but also your egress or being able to get a downed firefighter or a victim out just because of, of the makeup of the floor. On the positive note of that, uh, if you're disoriented, and Bobby talked about the open house plans, I'm looking at my kitchen right now. Uh, if I were to have a kitchen fire, it's going into one, two, oh, this isn't good, um, going into three rooms and has direct access up my stairwell. Um, so you know, even even something that's con confined as a, or comes out as a kitchen fire is going to involve the majority of the downstairs in my house right now. Um, so you know, look, look at it from, from that standpoint, you, know, you even get disoriented. We, look, we talk about transitions in the house. Like we go from a carpeted area to a tile or linoleum area. We've gone from a living area prior to a utility area of the house, um, you know, especially the tiles that are on walls. Uh, sometimes, not always, but a lot of times, the smaller tiles, you're either going to be in a bathroom or a kitchen. You, you feel the bottom grate of a, a stove or you feel the, the, the bottom drawer. Uh, you, you put your hand in something and it gets wet, you're probably in a toilet. If you're down low enough, high enough, you're in a sink. So these are some things, too, to reorient yourself in, in a house is start to look at those types of things and not to get too far off topic. But the same thing, um, you know, trying to find ourselves again, if it's, if it's a tile floor, looking for the grout seams. If we get disoriented, unless it's a mosaic, which is going to screw you up really bad, um, those grout seams, even if it's laid on a 45 degree angle, 
um, is going to lead you to a wall or a column in a, in a commercial structure if you're talking about pour seams and concrete. Same with baseboards. Um, you know, we, we normally put the fancy woodwork where our house guests come in and can look at it. What about utility areas of the house? We either have that rubberized or plastic baseboard or we have that very uh, construction grade squared off. So you know, I feel the nice uh, scalloped edge of a, of a baseboard, I'm probably in a living area of the house versus a, if I feel a, a squared off edge or no baseboard whatsoever, I'm probably in uh, a utility area of the house. So there's just tactically, there's some things, not only from just the direct access and fighting a kitchen fire, is if things go you know, from bad to worse or things don't go as planned, there's some things that you can start to orient yourself around uh, you know, where, where things may be in that structure. So that's just a, you know, a couple little a couple little nuggets uh, that I could think of from you know, some of the experiences that we've had. Good. Thanks, Trevor. I think, let me, I, I want to cover um, a little bit about engine company things um, for uh, kitchen fires. Uh, and then I want to turn it over to Rob and have him a little bit talk about, about first, uh, first arriving chief officers and kind of their perspective of the value of 360s and the things that, 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 that the chief officers are looking for when they show up. Um, you know, one of the things that, that I think we do a disservice to firefighters um, across the country is we, we put them in burn buildings and have a very, very separated or sterile environments as far as uh, not working together um, per se. So, uh, you know, we all know that, uh, you know, the guys that go to a lot of uh, burn building fires, they tend to stop as soon as the main the body of the fire is knocked down. Uh, when they're done with their deal, they tend to pull the hose lines out. Um, that's just typically what we do in burn buildings. Um, so I think it's, it, it behooves us to talk about, um, you know, when the engine company goes in, it's, it's usually a fairly easy stretch. Uh, the kitchen is usually not very far from the front door. If, you're, if your front door is your access, uh, many oftentimes the kitchen has a door that gets you right to it uh, from the outside of the structure for a utility door or whatever. Um, so, but I think one of the things that engine companies do on, on, on real working fires, that's a mistake is, um, you know, we don't have as much staffing as some of the larger urban departments do. And so a lot of times we don't have things happening concurrently, which would be really great. And that's really how it should happen, but we don't have a search happening while there's a fire attack happening, you know, while there's a search on the second floor happening. Um, we just, while the vent holes being cut in the roof kind of stuff, it's just not, uh, normally how we operate we usually have an engine company gets there works for a period of time it could be a minute could be five minutes depending on where they are in my area um you know and then you have a truck company come in and they're doing a primary search and things like that so um <clears throat> the problem is is that uh we tend to if we shut that line down and pull that line out um you know what it, what does it cover well if it's a two-story house it's almost always the, the kitchen's going to be on your first floor and our search and rescue priority is going to be on the second floor where the bedrooms are. And that's typically in a residential setting. We want to do that. So the engine company, the firefighting is actually not that hard to do in a kitchen fire. Um, it's got wide access. It, it, it knocks down fairly well. Um, but the problem is we need to leave somebody with that line to keep that fire from getting to those stairs. Uh, we really need to, we really need to do I, a gazillion trillion years ago as a Navy, as a firefighter, we, we were required to set a, what was called a fire watch. So if you if you put out or extinguish a fire in a, on a ship, you you did not leave. Um, you set a watch up for that particular area and never left until the whole thing was finished up. So uh, all I'm saying is, is when you get in there, they're not really tough fires to stretch to. There might be a lot of fire to knock down to get there. Um, but once you get there, um, keep that off of the interior stairs. 
unless you like those YouTube moments where people are trying to pull victims out of the windows and drop them off the ladders and stuff like that. Those interior stairs are usually the easiest way and the quickest way to get people out. Um, so from an engine company operations perspective, it's not usually a big stretch. It's not a hard stretch. It could be a fight to get there. Um, but then hold that fire where it is. Um, you know, yeah, you want to look for extension and things like that, but make sure you protect those stairs and protect those search crews that are coming in. Or even if you have to split your crew where you have, um, you know, oftentimes we don't have a truck crew there and the engine company has to actually start doing some primary search in the areas right around the fire area. Leave somebody there to watch that fire. Don't, don't let that thing go unknown. So that's kind of my engine company perspective. Rob, you want to talk a little bit about what the first few officers kind of looking for um, when you're looking at uh, residential structure fires and when they involved in the kitchen? Yeah. So uh, just to kind of piggyback on what Bob's Bobby's saying, um, you know, typically uh, in, in Salisbury, we don't have chief's aid. Some of the larger departments may. Um, so I'm kind of one man show when I arrive uh, in the, the command vehicle, kind of doing my own thing. Um, obviously 360s are important. Uh, 360s are 360s for a reason, all four sides, not just A, B, and D. You don't just glance down the right, glance down the left, and then go back to the buggy. Uh, because typically, like we said, kitchens are in the rear. Um, if you don't go get a look at that rear, you're, you're not going to find out. You're not going to find utilities, locations, things like that. Uh, I try to point those things out once my 360 is complete, you know, uh, 360 is complete. I've got a uh, single story rancher, uh, no basement. Utilities appear to be on the seaside, beast, wherever they may be, uh, you know, and then what you've what you've got a little bit further than just your initial arriving. Um, I think that tends to trigger the second and third and fourth arriving units rather than uh, them coming in kind of blind, just kind of listening to the operations. Um Window locations and sizes. We've not really talked about that, but if you think about it, most of the time, what's above your kitchen sink in most houses is going to be a smaller window. Uh, if it's not the kitchen, it's going to be probably the bathroom. Um, so kind of eyeing those things up. Most of our rancher style houses in Salisbury um, have obviously a front door, sometimes a slider off the rear. And then on the B side, D side, they'll have uh, a door going out to a small little uh, deck set of steps. Typically that door is off of the utility room or the kitchen. Um, and it may be your best and easiest access. Uh, like Trevor said, rather than having to fight your way through the, 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 the side a door, go to the D side door, come in, you might go through a small little, you know, six by six utility room and then boom, you're right in the kitchen. Um, you're not fighting all that hoarding or whatever else, you know, couches, sofas, things like that. Um, the, uh, we talked the other night and I was mentioning uh, a fire on another shift that they had. It came in, uh, I believe it just came in as a, as an automatic alarm. Um, and then I'm not sure if it got upgraded while they were going or not, but, uh, first arriving engine comes up, they do their thing. They see, you know, smoke at the front door, stretch a line, engine crew does what they're supposed to do. Truck now was doing the call automatically. So, they're coming and they started doing their search unbeknownst to them. Nobody was ported trapped. I don't think there was a car in the driveway, all the signs of where we just kind of would have laid back, sat on our haunches and just kind of gone with it. And they located a uh, unconscious female victim uh, in one of the back bedrooms. Uh, the engine company did their thing. Like Bobby said, held the fire in check, extinguished it, made sure it was out. And uh, the, the members of the truck crew pulled that lady's safety and she made it, she made a full recovery. So, uh, it's imperative that when you're doing the training, 
uh, back at the firehouse. Um, if you're staffing engines and trucks or, or if you're in a volley house that just runs an engine, um, play these situations out uh, in, in like almost like a tabletop. Uh, what are we going to do in this situation if we're the engine company or for the truck company? Um, that's more of the, the company officer uh, started out with the chief officer uh, standpoint of things. But um, basically that's, you know, what we're looking at. And then just to kind of go back uh, on, on what Trevor was saying, I mean, nobody wants to do the, 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 the non-sexy stuff and we got it this fancy name, you know, community risk reduction, but we've really been doing that forever. Uh, if you think back, um, you know, change of smoke detector batteries, uh, neighborhood sweeps, uh, and such. I was talking to a past chief uh, in Salisbury, and uh, we used to have a home uh, fire inspection program where we actually had a home inspector, and that was his job. Uh, he would go out every day and, and do home inspections. And uh, we used to, at the time, I think before it started, he told me we were averaging five to seven deaths a year, fire deaths. Um, and this this was 10 or 20, this is probably 20, 15, 20 years ago. Um, and we went on a six-year stretch while we were doing the home inspections with zero fire deaths. Um, so that's, that's pretty significant. Again, we called it home inspection. We didn't call it community risk reduction and, you know, all this stuff that, that like, like Trevor said, you know, some of these, the, the younger guys, they don't want to do that. Um, nowadays they just want to go to the fires and run the calls and, and that stuff's all good and well, and those will still come. But I think as, as the, they advance through the fire service, they'll realize the importance of, um, of doing some community risk reduction, whether it's, uh, you know, simply changing out a, a chirp and smoke detector that you heard on an, or a battery on, a, on an EMS call uh, or so on and so forth. But to kind of take it a little bit of a step uh, further uh, with regards to the um, strategy and tactics, and I know we're kind of talking a lot about residential, but um, the commercial fires, kitchen fires, the the quantity of the flammable product is something that I think needs to people need to remember when you're when you're talking about a residence, you're typically talking about what a small residential frying pan. Go to a McDonald's, go to Burger King, whatever your you know fast food restaurant of choice, Popeyes, uh, whatever it may be, and you have vats of grease that is hot all day long. Uh, I, I can just you know forcing your way through through a restaurant or coming in the back door and having a fryer that's you know burning on top and hitting that with, with your, your, your hose line, you're just going to, it's a recipe for disaster. So you've got to be thinking about what kind of building we're going to. Um, and, you know, I, I think back to a fire we had at the Popeyes on uh, 13 down South, there was mostly contained to the fryer. Um, the, the hood system uh, kind of darkened it down, but it was still, it was, it was definitely a fire. And if those guys had went in, with a hose line, we would have had a heck of a mess um, on our hands with rapid fire spread because I think Bobby hit on it earlier. might have been Trevor. Um, these places, while the hoods may be cleaned uh, regularly, are the walls scrubbed down? Or, and, and that's commercial and residential. Um, this stuff builds up and cakes up on the undersides of cabinets, and they almost become, you know, uh, laden with, with – uh, you know, chemicals and substances that are just going to fuel that fire even more. And, uh, you know, like Trevor kind of hit on it's, it's kitchens are usually on wide open spaces. I mean, I'm, I'm sitting here looking at my room and, or my house and kitchens in the background and there's a two story great room right in front of me. So that leads right to where my bedroom, all, all the bedrooms in my house are. So, uh, it's definitely wide open and, and 
you know, large, large area for smoke to collect before any bypasser or uh, outside person outside of my house is ever going to see it. And Rob, if, if you don't mind, um, and I know you've probably been on this call a hundred times, if not more, but when we're talking about residential uh, kitchen fires, the, the probability of uh, having not only multiple fires from someone trying, almost like when they have a mattress fire and trying to shove it out the window, if there's a pan on the stove, they try to take it through the house until it gets too hot and they drop it. A lot of us, uh, we have our paramedic units that respond directly with us to the fire scene. And more often than not, the first paramedic, first arriving paramedic unit, uh, most, if not all of that crew goes to suppression and it's a secondary unit that might be coming in. It takes care of the EMS factor. Um, and in your experience with having not only those multiple fires, but also the potential of, uh, having you know, at least one burn victim possibly out of this, what are some things that you do to, to handle that situation? And then I want to pitch it to Bobby after that, because I know in um, his first due up there in Delaware, I believe you guys have um, some walkout basements in a lot of the places where they've converted them into a separate living quarter. So uh, you know, maybe you guys can talk separately on those things, but if you don't mind touching on that, Rob, as far as you know, how to, how to split your crews up and, and taking care of, um, multiple functions at one time. So you have a, you have the fire function, but you also have an obvious uh, burn victim or two on arrival. Yeah, sure. So uh, in Salisbury on our first alarm assignments, we're getting two uh, medic units. Um, our policy actually says that the, the first medic unit is responsible for patient care. Um, but a lot of times Trevor's right. We pull up, there's not a, not a person standing in the front yard. We, we, put them to work to assist our suppression with our, you know, staffing of three on the engines and four on the truck. Um, that's two extra people. Um, and typically, uh, very good, you know, a good, a good, we, we pair a firefighter EMT and a firefighter paramedic. And, uh, typically that's just some, some stellar people on those crews. So definitely, um, you know, I, I had a, a chief officer when I was coming up that we could literally make eye contact, uh, when we would pull up, there's no patients. He would look at me, he'd kind of give me the nod, and I knew that my, my partner and myself were, we were going to work. Um, and then that second arriving uh, EMS unit would, uh, would assume patient care. Um, and as, as a chief officer, I, you know, I go back and forth because we, we staff three uh, EMS units that, you know, I sometimes think that we could use three, uh, one to help with suppression, one for patients, and then one for our own people. Uh, to be there, you know, and we go back and forth in our in our command meetings about should we do two, should we do three? Because of when we do three, we deplete the city of resources for the other emergencies. So um, it is it is critical that we have those EMS units uh, respond on the calls, and they do definitely assist us uh, with that. I mean, I'm I'm not sure what other uh, departments do, but we carry you know our guys have air packs, they got their gear, guys and gals, I should say. Um, you know, air packs and gear and stuff like that right on the rig and they come off and they know that they're that they're going to work. Um, there's nothing also that says that they can't help with uh, outside vent uh, utilities without being truly engaged inside of the the structure above and beyond. Should you then get presented with a burn victim later on, you know, two, three minutes into the call, um, you know, so. Yeah, it's it's imperative that, that we have those those medic units going with us, and it's their their mission is kind of twofold, and uh, they're I think I wouldn't hesitate to say that they're more important than they probably give themselves credit for uh, when they're going to a call. A lot of them are kind of disappointed because they're on the ambulance and they're not on the nozzle, and you know, but we can uh, we can 
put them to work. And uh, a lot of times uh, I know from back in the days when I was riding the ambulance as, a, as an ALS provider, uh, I caught quite a bit of fire and got put to work quite a few times uh, from an ambulance. And uh, so, yeah, Trevor, Trevor's right. It's, it's imperative that they uh, be well-trained and, and be ready to go to work uh, and kind of have their eyes open as to do I have a burn patient or, or am I going to actual suppression? And then that next unit coming up and saying, all right, well, we didn't have a burn patient. Now we do. And, and, and I've got this, you know, under control. Good, good deal. And uh, Bobby, and, and, uh, if I'm talking out of school, let me know. But uh, I believe that in some of your like townhouses, uh, some of them are built where they have a, a sub level or a walkout basement. It, it, am I thinking about the right place? I, so I thought Dougie had talked about them, but, so when we talk about going around to the rear of the structure for the kitchen, that might not necessarily be at that grade level that you're going into because it might be a walkout basement. Is there anything you can add on that, Bobby, from uh, up there in, in Millville? Um, yeah, we have a few of those. Um, we're, we're pretty much flatland, so we have had fires in those up here in Delaware. Um, much more prominent in the northern part of the state. Um, you know, we had some firefighter fatalities a few years ago in Wilmington from exactly a situation like that with a walkout uh, row home fire. So, um, you know, I, I think where the kitchen is the big deal. Uh, I think if you have a walkout basement, um, I don't even know if it's a walkout basement. We call it a basement because we, from the front, we don't see it and it's below grade, but from the rear, it doesn't look like a basement at all. And I think we kind of throw some terminology to it, but really, and look at what Rob's talking about. Where is the basement? That's really the important thing. And, you know, when Rob does his 360, he goes, ah, you know what? It's a, it's a, it's a walkout basement in the back, you know, and that's, that's kind of why the 360 is so important. You could have a three-story or four-story building in the back and a two-story building in the front and have no idea without that 360. Um, it, you know, most of your larger buildings, you're going to know about it, but you know, there's residentials that do the same thing. So, um, yeah, I think uh, um, I just think it's it's really where where the location of the uh, kitchen is 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 kind of what the big deal is uh, to me. Um, we just we have very few here, but we've had a couple of fires in them. So there you go. Good deal. Thanks, Bobby. Appreciate that. Well, guys, we're we're just over an hour. Um, I don't know if we want to kick it around one more time just to wrap it up um, and then we'll, we'll close it out for the night. Great conversation as always. So um, Trevor, why don't we go over to you for your, your final thoughts for kitchen fires and everything that we've, we've discussed for tonight. Great. Thanks, Ben. Um, really, we've pretty much covered a lot of things. Uh, I'm really glad that Rob, uh, Rob got into the commercial kitchen fires as well, because that's uh, a complete conversation on its own. But there's just so many dynamics to the commercial buildings, uh, especially the um, you know, the fast food restaurants, like he had mentioned, and um, you know, and also our risk benefit with that, because as we talked about before, a lot of the fast food restaurants, other than liability insurance, they don't insure the structure itself. If there's a fire in it, it gets torn down and it gets rebuilt, um, and all the all the heavy equipment, the uh, chilling units, the HVAC, everything that's on the roof. Um, so when we're dealing with fires in the hood systems or uh, you know, some of those commercial ones, that's uh, that's its own animal, which you know, has its own subset of hazards. So I'm really glad that uh, Chief Frampton brought that up. And um, I want to thank you know, not only all the viewers for uh, looking at this tonight and, and everybody on the panel, but Rob, you especially, uh, you, you brought something to light that we kind of overlooked. Like you said, it's uh, 
a very small percentage of our calls overall, but accounts for such a major part of our property damage and dollar loss. And I know you're doing this as part of your applied research um, as a uh, student in the executive fire officer program. So uh, congratulations to you on that. And, uh, you know, keep on keeping on. You're doing a great job with it. Yeah, thank you. I uh, appreciate it. Um, you know, definitely uh, was inspired uh, as a young newbie by the likes of Trevor and Bobby and several others down in Ocean City and in Salisbury. So uh, you, I'm giving you guys some props for for kind of pushing me along the way, along with several others. But uh, I, I thought tonight uh, when when uh, Trevor and Ben asked uh, me to be a part of this, I was kind of like, well, it's going to be kind of boring and dry. Nobody wants to talk about the research and the the numbers and all that kind of stuff. But then we got to talking and, and, and trying to tie it together uh, with the strategy and tactics. And uh, look, I'm, I'm as much of a nozzle geek as anybody else. But uh, what I have learned is it is there's definitely some numbers and some research and, and we do play a critical role in uh, community risk reduction. And I know people don't want to refer to it as that and talk to it as that, but it, that is our uh, primary responsibility uh you know the, the fires aren't going to go away uh they may be less but they're they're going to be more they're going to burn hotter they're going to burn faster uh and uh the dollar loss is simply there to prove that we really need to address this uh a lot of the the research that i did and the conclusions that i came up with uh went back to uh legislation and prevention type programs uh such as you know uh, fire extinguishers in rental homes and uh, fire stop uh, AES systems uh, in multifamily dwellings and would love to have them in rental homes, but realize that there is a cost and, and a maintenance, not necessarily a maintenance, but a uh, inspection type issue that not all municipalities can have. So uh, those are kind of the drivers for it. Uh, we're fortunate in Salisbury to have a fire marshal's uh, office that's now working for us. Um, they're doing great stuff. They're doing plan reviews and all kinds of commercial stuff, and they definitely have their interest sparked they're peaked in looking into uh, expanding into residential stuff. So again, I just thank you guys for the invite. I hope people uh, got some stuff out of this and uh, hope we didn't bore you to death with stats. I think we talked definitely a, a little bit too about uh, the stats and tactics and things like that. So um, uh, yeah, thank you guys. I appreciate it. Look forward to uh, coming back again, talk about something else. Perfect. That's what we want to hear. All right, Bobby, you're up next. Well, first of all, first and foremost, uh, thank you, Chief Frampton, for coming along uh, on this ride with us. Um, you know, I, I met I met Chief Frampton long enough ago that I had color in my hair and he had hair. So, um, yeah, it's been a really uh, an interesting uh, topic to talk about. Um, and, and I've never been uh, I've always been kind of more of the interior kind of fire guy, training guy and things like that. Um, but you know, recently, um uh, the fire chief asked me to, to to head up a smoke detector program in a community in Ocean City. And I remember uh, when we first started going through it, I'm like, oh, my gosh, you know, this is really boring. And we got to get ladders and smoke detectors and all that crazy stuff. And I got to tell you, um, you know, over 80 percent of the buildings, the houses, residential structures that we saw didn't have what would meet the standard. Uh, they were older than 10 years old. They didn't work. Um and, you know, when we talk about socioeconomic, unfortunately, uh, fire detection systems, they tended to be universal. Uh, we had a guy who was a, a prominent lawyer that none of his smoke detectors were working at all. Let me check his house. He had, he had plenty of money, had plenty of resources, just never thought about it, wasn't on his mind. So 
you know, this the fire research and the, and, and the community risk reduction is uh, so eloquently as Chief Trevor put it um, is um, it, it, it's important because the lives it saves don't make the news. Um, they just don't make the news. You just hear a reduction in deaths nationwide. You don't know why. And I can tell you a lot of it has to do with uh, the hardworking fire marshals and the hardworking people that are doing this other research and things like that, that us fire guys just didn't want to do. So I, I appreciate what you're doing, Rob. I, I, I thank you for that. Um, it's certainly going to help us do our job better. And uh, thanks to everyone else for watching. And it's been a, it's been a good time tonight. Thanks. Thanks, Bobby. Thanks, guys. Uh, Rob, always a pleasure to talk to you. Um, you know, one of the shifts that I always enjoy to come in and hang out and, um, and you know, just like talk shop and do kind of like what we did tonight. Um, so it's always a, always a blast to come in and see you guys when you're working. Um, as far as, you know, everything we talked about tonight, uh, like the guy said, you know, the community risk reduction, it's not the, it's not the sexy part. It's not what, um, you know, everybody necessarily signed up to do. We signed up to ride Big Red. We signed up to to run calls, to stretch lines, to put fire out. Um, but it, it is, I would say, equally, if not more important uh, than, than doing all that is making sure that we're getting out in the community. We're explaining what we're doing. We're helping prevent stuff from occurring because um, ultimately it's not about us. Um, you know, if you join the fire service, you're in it for the right reasons. You know it's not about us, and it's about the people we serve. So, going out, doing that stuff, doing the right thing, and helping prevent, uh, you know, those incidents from happening. So, um, so that's it for what we have tonight. Uh, we're looking forward to next week, uh, or not next week? Sorry, um, I believe we're looking at May twenty eighth. Sorry, two weeks. Yep. Sorry, guys. Again, we're all, we've only done this five times. Um, I'll get it. I'll get it straight sometime. So. In preparation for coming up in two weeks, um, in order to keep up with us, again, a special thanks to Assistant Chief Rob Frampton, A-Shift, Salisbury Fire Department. If you guys aren't watching the Salisbury Fire Department Facebook page, you should be. A lot of great stuff that they're they're coming out with there. Um, Chief Frampton was was a big part in this, this recent thing that we've started where we read every Thursday at uh, 1030 on Facebook Live. Um, and again, a lot of stuff coming through with that. So, um, like I said, Salisbury fire department, uh, follow them on their social media. I'm sorry. I didn't put it up here, but here's everything for strike the box, our, our Facebook page, our new Instagram page. Um, we're a little slow with the start. We're new with it. So cut us a little slack. Uh, but there's our Instagram, Twitter, our website, and as always our email. So if you guys have questions, you want to get up with us about something, Please shoot us an email, shoot us a message, um, send us a tweet, whatever it is, uh, but let us know. Get up with us. We'd love to love to come out and chat with you, talk with you, and, and help you guys with whatever you got going on. Uh, moving forward, like I said, next week, uh, we're coming back. Thirsty Thursday, number six, Millennial Madness. Uh, Chief Steedman had the great idea of, of doing a talk about um, – the millennials and um, how they interact and how we interact. Unfortunately, I have to say I'm a millennial, uh, but how we interact with the, the previous generations, how we're interacting and moving forward with the younger generations. Um, so we have some special guests. Um, we're still in the process of, of setting them all up, getting them straight with what we're going to do. Um, but 
watch our Facebook, watch our social media. It's going to be epic. That's all, that's all I'm going to say. It's going to be awesome. You're not going to want to miss it. Um, Chief Steven called me and was told me who one of our special guests was. And I, I had my own stuff, my own little freak out period. Um, so definitely watch our stuff, watch our stuff. See when we're going to be, when, um, when we'll be announcing this and be sure to check us out until next time. Stay safe. Uh, take care of yourself. Take care of your family. Take care of your brothers and sisters. And we will see you soon. Have a good night.